Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I listen to you on the radio and she respects your opinion as I do. So here's the question. I've been separated for nine months. I'm working on a divorce. Is it okay to date? I believe it is. But she's not comfortable with being around people who know my divorce is not final. Can you help? He kind of answered it when he said if she's not comfortable, it's not a good gig. And Pat, you have some questions about dating? I am 58 years old Mm -hmm. and uh, I've been divorced for years. I was watching the Oprah show the other day and they were talking about... They were talking about sexual desire. How does that factor in if you're after menopause? Obviously, being postmenopausal, you know, you aren't going to have the same pheromones, but then the men you're probably going to be dating, they're not going to have that need to mate with you, uh, you know, for children. How do you feel about hooking up with somebody else? To bring Carol to your station, call John Quick at 317-432-0309. Available as a long-form talk show and in 60-second infomercials for even more revenue opportunity. Carol the Coach, truly refreshing radio, enriching the lives of your listeners. And hello there, I am Carol the Coach and I am available to talk to anybody who needs me to come to their radio station and talk about sexual addiction because I'm telling you this is a topic that is not talked about enough. And as far as I know, this kind of show is not available in any way, shape, or form. So I am so happy to be with you tonight. Um, I really believe that it's an important topic because this is an epidemic. Um, Addiction has always been an epidemic, but sexual addiction 
it's relatively new. You know, it came on the scene in the mid-'80s, and it has really um, ballooned. Uh, And and so what did I do? I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get specialized training in this and went through ITAP, which is the International Institute for Addictions Training. And and I trained with Patrick Carnes. And anybody who has looked into this at all knows that Patrick Carnes has written probably more books than anybody else on sexual addiction. And when I got my training with him, I said, okay, now what am I going to do? And I said, you know what? I'm going to open up a radio show specifically for sexual addiction. And i got to tell you, I've got thousands and thousands of listeners all across the globe. I get, I get emails and calls from Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Europe, any kind of, London, Europe. It's just amazing that... People are starting now to tune into iTunes, throw in the term sexual addictions, and they're coming up with the show. And so here's my mission. My mission is to educate you about sexual addiction and where you can go for help. And so what do I do? I oftentimes call different people who have expertise in sexual addiction. I ask them if they'll be on the show and if they'd be willing to talk about their expertise. So we've had people from the Meadows on. We've had um, love addiction theorists on. We've had attachment theories who theorists who believe that truly. Part of the sexual addiction issue is an attachment issue. And so tonight I'm really excited because I am going to have John and Elaine Leadham, and they wrote One in the Spirit. It's a meditation course for recovering couples. And it is a book that I have followed with my husband. Many of you know that he is a recovering alcoholic of 18 years. And so we practice the methods in this book that go day by day. It's an amazing book that talks, you know, on a daily basis about the challenge. What is the challenge in our life for the day? What is the reflection? What should we be thinking about? And then what do we need to do to leave it up to our higher power? And I'm telling you, the minute that you work on those kinds of reflections and meditations, you end up creating dialogue with your partner that you really need as well as it gives you hope, strength, and recovering, and that's what this show is all about. So tonight, John and Lane are going to be doing something different. They are going to be talking a little bit more intensely about their own relationship and the faces that they wear. Um, They're going to talk about their story, and they're going to invite you to call in. Now, you know, obviously what I know to be true is that, you know, a lot of you listen to the show after the fact. You download it from iTunes, and I have no problem with that. But if you are listening live, 
please write this number down or put it in your phone. And the number is, everybody got their phone? 646-595-3284. Because you can talk about anything and ask any kind of questions you want. You've got three experts. You've got John, Elaine, and myself. And um, we're here to help you with the issues that are plaguing your life. Um, you know, I got an email um, and from a, a person that said, hey, I've listened to your podcast today and I'm very concerned that I qualify as a sex addict. And, and although there were lots of things this person didn't do, he actually admitted that when he gets online, he hides his history. And even though he has filters on part of his, um, like his laptop and his personal computer, he does not on the phone because he wants that window of opportunity. He says, no one really knows, but I'm so afraid of being discovered that the shame is overwhelming and he knows that his offenses are becoming greater and greater and greater. And he asked what to do. So the first thing that I say is if you are really concerned that you might have a sexual addiction, you need to read Out of the Shadows by Patrick Carnes and get the book Facing the Shadows, which is a workbook, and it can actually help you through the steps. Now, last week I got a, uh, an email from somebody who wanted to buy the Recovery Start Kit. And that is 120 days worth of exercises that you can work on to begin your recovery. It should not be done alone. Uh, if I could just uh, wave a magic wand and give you exactly what you need, I would say, hey, I want you to get a certified sexual addictions therapist because they have been trained with this stuff. And you can do that by going to www.itap.com. So let's go over that again, www.sexhelp.com, and put in your zip code or your city, and it will show you if who are the closest certified sexual addictions therapists to help you through this process. But I really do believe in both bibliotherapy and I really do believe in SA or SAA meetings. And so I would ask you to go and, and Google those terms and see what comes up in your city. And if you live out in the boondocks or in an area that just doesn't have that available, you can go to telemeetings. That's the beauty of this stuff is you can absolutely go to telemeetings. So there are resources available to you. And this person who understandably said, I'm not out of control, but he's doing a lot of hiding and secrecy, is falling right into what we know is active addiction. And so hopefully he'll be listening today as he hears John and Elaine lead him, talk about their story. It, their story is what gave the, them the impetus to write the book, One in the Spirit, Meditation Course for Recovering Couples. 
and you can get that on Amazon.com. Uh, you can get that in General Path. You know, anybody who's done any addictions work knows that it's very helpful to have skill-building exercises. And these folks give you 52 weekly themes that address commonly occurring romantic challenges. And I don't know about you. I mean, certainly there are plenty of addicts who don't have partners. But oftentimes one of the things that gets you to look at your addiction is when you actually have a partner who has discovered what you're doing. Now, my emailer obviously is is doing his best to hide things. So that says he has a problem. And, um, you know, I'm sure he is wearing the, the face of somebody who doesn't have a problem. So I cannot wait for John and Elaine to talk about the faces that they wore when they first met and throughout the very beginning of their relationship. Um because let's face it, most of us when we meet our significant other or when we're dating, we put our best face forward and we hide or maybe we don't even engage in activities or behaviors that we know would absolutely be a turnoff. And then as we get more comfortable in the relationship, the real person comes out, and that is what we fell in love with. And there's a reason for that. We fell in love with people that have certain issues so that we can work out our issues. Um, and at the same time, it's important to be as healthy as possible in terms of your partnership with another person. So, again, if you're going to have any questions, feel free to give me a call. And, you know, you can Google sexual addiction and get any information you want, but I would encourage you to go to www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com and get on my website and see the kind of information I have, as well as I've got contributing um, people from the community of recovery. I'm really proud of what they do. Uh, Today I finished my last group, and I was so excited um, to to have finished my my first official group of sex addicts. Now, we ran 15 weeks. We're going to get through the holidays, and then we're going to start another 15 weeks. And some people have graduated. Some people are moving. Some people are traveling to Florida for the winter. And so we have plenty of opportunities to add other people. And as I indicated before, that is awful exciting because we can add new people. We've got the veterans. We've got the newbies. We've got people that want to work. And a sex addict group is one of the things that I was taught is absolutely essential if you're working in the field of sexual addiction. Now, if you've got a pen and paper ready, you're going to want to copy down another important website, www.leademcounseling.com. And that is spelled L-E-A-D-E-M-C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G.com. These folks are out of New Jersey, and i got to tell you, one of the the couples 
that I've worked with forever that have been in my sexual addiction group um, amazingly are moving to New Jersey, so I'm so glad that they're going to get to work with John and Elaine. I would, I'm just thrilled that they're going to move on to two people that really know the field of addiction, drugs, alcohol, and sex. So, again, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to work with experts when you really, really, really want to maximize your treatment. Um, So keep this number close, 646-595-3284, and we'll be waiting for your calls. This is Carol the Coach, and again, I cannot emphasize how important it is to get information about addiction. I mean, truly. Uh, You know, so many people white-knuckle it. They really work hard and diligently on hiding their secret, but they don't know what to do to get healthier. And I'm here to promise you that unless you read the right materials, talk to the right people, and get into the right meetings, you're not necessarily going to get any help. So that is what I promise you, is that we will make your life different by really working on how to how to work on addiction so that you absolutely, positively make your life better. Okay. And I do believe they are trying to call, but we're having some technical difficulties, so I am going to give them a call and hopefully make this all better. So hang in there, and we will be right back. All right, here we are. And again, you are listening to Carol the Coach, and I am so excited to be talking with you today and working with you on sexual addiction. So John and Elaine Leadham are experts in the field. I guarantee you, you will really appreciate the work that they are going to do. So I am trying to get them on the line. I am working hard on that. And here we go. John and Elaine, just hang in there. I am working on these phones. Goodness gracious.
All right, are you there? I am not hearing you, so I know you're trying to get on the line. Don't hang in there with me. I do not know what has been happening with Blog Talk. They've been having a lot of problems, and this is just breaking my heart. So hold on. I'm going to refresh, and we are going to see if we can get this thing going on. All right, it looks like after some refreshing time, there we go. John and Elaine, are you on the line? We are, Carol. Oh, Hi, Carol. goodness gracious. Ah, Blog Talk has been having some difficulty, and I so apologize for that, but I'm so excited to have you because I'm telling you, I know tonight you're going to share a little bit of your personal story to help inspire our listeners so that they know that they're not alone in what they're facing themselves. So. You had wanted to talk a little bit about your life and how you met and kind of the faces you were wearing prior to um, working solidly on your recovery. Who wants to tell me first how this all came about? Hi, Carol. It's John. And thank you for having us back. Uh, We're a little sad that this is our last show, but we have so thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to be with you and your guest Uh, The stories that we're going to relate tonight are our stories. Uh, We have um, written them out um, in narrative form because when we are working with couples and in our upcoming book, Awakening to Your Soulmate, A Decision to Be in Love, we encourage couples to write out the stories of how their relationship developed and the antecedents and the consequences that they have encountered in their relationship. And so if we ask couples to do that, we are going to do it ourselves. So we will share that story tonight with you as we have so many times with other couples. And I'll begin. Hey, John, let me ask you, because you said, obviously you had them write the antecedents and the consequences. Now, for somebody who might not know what antecedents means, well, how would you describe that? There's a story behind Mm -hmm. every set of behaviors and every set of defense mechanisms or behind our defects of character. And that story is tied to the life experiences that we endure as children and the strategies that we develop for coping with those life experiences. The story that Elaine and I are going to share with your guest uh, tonight will outline for your listening audiences the life experiences that led to some of the very self-destructive masks that we wore in our relationship, and you'll hear about how we overcame them. Okay, so these masks that you wore when you met each other were driven from your childhood and, and the situations that you dealt with as younger people. So continue. Thanks. Neither Elaine nor I were our parent bashers. We don't blame our parents for who we are and discourage that defective character in our clients. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I will add that the families that Elaine and I grew up in were ones that if we had a choice, we would not have chosen them. Both of us were born into alcoholic homes, and the world that Elaine and I grew up in was shrouded in fear, abuse, neglect, and spiritual deprivation. During our romantic courtship conversations, it would seem that we had grown up in the same house, even though our cultural environments could not have been different. We often related the harrowing tales of our respective childhood stories 
and marveled at how similarly we had grown up. This intimate sharing created a close bond that formed early in our relationship and provided mutual support and personal validation. It was as if we had known each other always. Yeah, and it's almost as if you magnetized each other into your life because of your childhoods. Uh, In a lot of ways, yes. Okay, continue. Okay. Our professional work with families and couples had taught us that a child's pre-teenage years are sometimes times for intense training for romance and intimate communication, a sort of marriage college, if you will. Most children study their parents or caregivers intently to learn how people who love each other are expected to behave towards each other. The courses we had taken in marriage college would leave us ill-prepared, unfortunately, as adults to be nurturing, even if we had managed to keep our prayerful childhood promises that we, neither of us would drink. In their best moments, our parents lived like married singles who were engaged to be divorced, and in the dark times, they taught us why we should never marry. We did not remain abstinent, as promised, but we did manage to retain the college lessons well. Elaine? The hardships that John and I bore as children growing up in alcoholic homes are far from unique. Most of the forgotten children of alcoholism know what it's like to grow up with a huge hole in their heart. Most of us are no strangers to trauma. The sexual abuse I endured and the lessons that John was taught that his father claimed would hurt him more than John are stories that many forgotten children can recite by heart. The experiences we had endured had become a strong source of attraction that we felt towards each other. Our work with couples reveals a pattern similar to our own. Romantic partners with traumatic childhood backgrounds are often attracted to the depth they find in each other. The bonds that they developed are formed quickly and generally run deep. The problem with this pattern is that we tend to be attracted to mates that have been pretty mangled up by life and have not taken the steps to unmangle themselves. John? By the age of 13, I had already committed the most egregious acts that I had ever witnessed in the shadows of my father's alcoholism. I was 5 feet 6 inches tall and 225 pounds of what my mom still called baby fat when I discovered slow gin in the boys' room at the Immaculate Conception Church dance. As I reached for the brown paper bag, I vaguely remembered my childhood pledge to abstain from alcohol that I prayerfully offered every night before bedtime. I properly dismissed the vow as an immature resolution of a child trying to calm his mother's fears that her son would grow into an alcoholic like her husband and her father before him. But I knew what mom did not know would not hurt her. I thought to myself, and besides, I was never going to be as bad as my dad anyway. The memory and the resolution vanished. By the time I eventually left the restroom, one sip, just to see what it felt like, became ten, and I was off to meet my one true love on the dance floor, like some kind of 1960s version of John Travolta. Could you imagine a drunken 13-year-old whose obesity prevented him from seeing his shoes with a Saturday night fever and a belly full of slow gin, trying to boogie his way into the heart of the first girl he met on the dance floor when I had never danced a step in my life. It was not a pretty sight. The evening ended, I am told, when I cursed the church and told the crowd that God was dead 
and a priest leading a mob of students chased me and my friends from the church property, warning that we should never darken the doors of that church again. I was on my way to becoming just like my dad. That same year, I found the girl of my dreams in the lingerie section of the Sears and Robux catalog, and it was love at first, second, and third sight. A dual addiction to addictive substances and sexually and romantically addictive behaviors was born. I was not going to draw a sober breath for another five years, and the pursuit of romantic and sexual fulfillment was going to become my second drug of choice right after Southern Comfort and remain a matter of fantasy and self-delusion for another three and one-half years after I got substance sober. This was not the way it was supposed to turn out. I had a sense that I was in trouble, but Dad usually drank too much and hurt people. Dad ran around with other women and used me as an alibi for my mother. Dad was the problem, not me. I was going to be different, but the prophecy seemed to be unfolding, and I lacked the power to do anything about it. I would end up just like him if I did not change. I had imagined better for myself. Elaine? I don't know that I imagined that my life would be different than my parents. I spent most of my early childhood denying just how very bad things really were. I spent my childhood living in the world of fantasy. It didn't matter if the story came from the thousands of books I read or created during the time I spent playing with Barbie and Ken dolls or from the pictures I saw in my father's pornography stash. By the age of seven, I had already perfected the use of fantasy as a way to disappear, as I had already felt defective and powerless. I can recall feeling like I was flowing down the aisle at St. Philomena's Church, dressed in my white dress and veil during my first Holy Communion ceremony. Sadly, I have no other memory of that sacred event, as I quickly resorted to fantasy, to quiet the storm of anxiety within me. You see, my parents and I had arrived late for this event as they were fighting off a hangover from a late night of heavy drinking. We arrive at the church and we meet with Sister Maurice, who was waiting to start the procession and angry that I was late once again. My My parents blamed our tardiness on my irresponsibility, but Sister and I both knew that neither knew the truth, and neither of us was going to talk about it. She rushed my parents off to their seats and enlisted me in her denial that my parents never meant any harm, as she assured me that they were good and loving people who were only going through rough times. When I protested and tried to explain the horrible scene in our living room last night, she reminded me of the fourth commandment, that I honor my mother and father, and I quickly departed one more time for the world of fantasy, that had become my anesthesia. I spent the remainder of the communion ceremony in the zone of self-delusion that I would migrate to again and again in the years to come. The fantasy that took hold that day was one of me being married to my partner and the thoughts of us were living happily ever after. This theme of my pursuing men to rescue me was to return over and over throughout my life until I had addressed my sex and love addiction. The years following were marked with incest and other forms of sexual abuse that as much as I tried could not be numbed away by flights of fantasy or my attempts to assume the lives of the heroes or heroines that I read about in the library books that I read each day. I would need more. I found alcohol by the age of 15 and was secretly engaged to be married to a 15-year-old boy that worshipped the ground that I walked on. 
I was not exactly sure what that phrase meant, but I had heard it while attending marriage college, and being worshipped was definitely a phenomenon associated with a soulmate. I defiantly took risks in order to feel good, and when that did not work any longer, I found myself going to any length necessary to feel nothing at all. By the time I reached high school, I had gone from a good little girl who could not understand why others did not see or treat me that way to an alcoholic who desperately sought and attempted to conquer every possible suitor, especially those who worshipped me. There was no fidelity, no honor, no decency, and most of all, very little conscience to get in my way. Instead, I was filled with anger at all the men who had abused me and for the many who I thought failed to protect and care for me. I was determined to get even with them, at, at, get even at them no matter what it cost me. Within a year of graduation, I had found myself at odds with everything and everybody and barely able to come up with one good reason not to take my own life. My entrance into the recovery rooms was nothing out of the ordinary for a typical alcoholic of the early 70s. I had no money, no education, tons of debt, no employable skills, no promise for the future, a small junkyard of damaged autos, and a huge wake of broken hearts and promises. The only difference between me and the other alcoholics I met was that I was 18, and the average age in the recovery rooms at the time was 60 years old. The drinking and drugging stopped on January 1st, 1971, and by the grace of God and the 12-step support that I receive, that chapter will remain closed. However, my imperious pursuit of love and romance did not stop when I put the cork in the jug. In fact, it intensified into a reign of terror that would have led me to, to me getting kicked out of the recovery rooms if the traditions would have allowed it. You often hear someone share at a gratitude meeting that my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. As a reminder that no matter how bad things look, life before sobriety was more intolerable. But that was not true for me. Some of my sober days were worse than my worst days drinking because I continued to objectify women and worship at the shrine of the perfect romance. Most of the amends that I would one day need to make would be grounded in the behavior associated with what at the time was called womanizing. I know it today as love and sex addiction. Elaine? At the age of 18, I entered the 12-step rooms doubting that I could ever change and certainly did not believe that I could do this with a room full of strangers promoting the use of spiritual tools as a way to freedom. I was even less trusting of the smiling faces that seemed to show up at every meeting I attended. The wall that I had built around myself was one of sarcasm and defiance. No one could help me, and besides, I took great pride at being able to take care of myself, not to rely on anyone. Relying on others was a recipe for disaster, or so I thought. Surprisingly, I stayed in the 12-step rooms, but I was vehemently opposed to dropping my guard and becoming vulnerable. What I couldn't see but eventually was able to do with the help of many was that my very best efforts to protect myself had failed to protect me from others or even myself. The obsession to use substances to alter my mood was removed early, and the relationships I formed in the recovery rooms encouraged me to make the changes in my personality 
through the steps that allowed me to imagine a life without revenge and the prospect of love. John and I met in the 12-step recovery rooms, and I saw in our relationship an opportunity to rewrite the way the story of my life would end. He was not the perfect man. In fact, he openly talked about his flaws. He was certainly not the man that my childhood heroines rode off into the sunset with. He did not worship the ground I walked on. Heck, he even seemed whole without me. I recoiled from his claim that, while he loved me, I would always come third in line after the 12-step fellowship he had come to know as family and after his relationship with God. I don't know why I did not run from the relationship immediately. Perhaps it was because the old-timers had warned me not to leave before the miracle happened, or perhaps it was because we were brought together to promote continued healing in each other. My untreated love and sex addiction brought me to a bottom I had never known with addictive substances. Perhaps it was because I had been sober long enough to know better, and perhaps the havoc I was wreaking could no longer be credited to intoxicants. I had spent three and a half years shooting romantic fish in the recovery room barrel, and my last catch tried to kill herself after our breakup that I fashioned was for her own good. You know how the storyline goes. I feared that I had become the character described in Chapter 5 of the recovery text, Alcoholics Anonymous, as being constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself or others. I confessed my sins to an old-timer that told him and told him of my fear. He gave me good advice and bad advice. The good advice was that there was hope for me because a person who was constitutionally incapable of being honest with himself or others would never pose the question in the first place. Sociopaths, he assured me, don't walk around wondering why they don't have a conscience. The bad advice was twofold. The first bit of misguided wisdom defined my problem with women as being related to my immature desire to allow them to get too close. Romance and love is great, he growled, but it never, it needed to be kept separate from the business of recovery, and he warned that I should never let a loved one meddle in my program. He further encouraged that all was fair in love and war, and I'd, I would be better off not making any emotional commitments. He closed by reminding me that every, under every skirt there was a slip, as if women would be my undoing. I was in a world of pain with no anesthesia and sought retreat in the priesthood, but that did not work out as I had planned. Convinced by a priest, recruiter, that I was trying to run from my problems with women, I entered a period of abstinence from romance and sex to find out what was wrong and why it was that my life became so very unmanageable every time I entered a romance. During that 20-month period of romantic and sexual celibacy, I discovered my desire to fill the hole in my spirit with a romance or with sex was virtually the same strategy I had unsuccessfully attempted with booze. I came to understand the deeper meaning of the phrase, our liquor was but a symptom. My obsession with women, sex, and romance was every bit as addictive as my love affair with Southern Comfort had been. The first 12-step fellowship for sex addicts was not going to arrive on the scene for another six years, so I spent many hours searching the existing recovery rooms for men who understood what I was talking about and wanted something different for themselves. 
nearly two years after entering what I had originally thought was going to be a desert of deprivation, I emerged from the oasis a free man. The six-step work I had undertaken revealed that for me, booze, addictive romance, and uncommitted sex were all intended to fill the same spiritual hole. A slip was not to be found under every skirt, any more than peace or fulfillment could be secured there. In fact, the problem was not the skirts at all. I had focused only on the unmanageability I had known as a result of what I put into my body and skirted my other addictive problems for far too long. My obsession was lifted, and I discovered my lifelong mate when I was not even looking. Imagine that, Elaine. Our courtship lasted nine months before we were married in the same church I had fantasized myself a childhood bride 12 years earlier. In the personal vows that we exchanged, John began with the statement, I cannot promise you that I will stay married to you because I have never remained committed to anything or anyone, but I will promise you I will make a lot of noise if I am troubled or unhappy. Father Caven appeared shocked by John's promise, but I understood perfectly well what he meant. I wished I had made the same commitment. Before our first anniversary, I had cheated on him and disregarded every recovery commitment I have ever made to him, my God, and to myself. He was aware of my withdrawal from the recovery rooms, but not the affair. The affair was not an attempt to free myself from my marriage or an angry, vengeful retribution against John. I really loved him. It was me that was in trouble. Our intimate relationship had awakened the two-headed demon of anger and fear. I was very angry as a child that I was dependent on my perpetrators, and that anger was coaxed to the surface by the interdependency that John and I were developing. My fear of vulnerability that I had learned at the hands of my rapist at the age of eight and my other perpetrators throughout my teens was screaming, run for your life. If you work with trauma cases, you learn that post-traumatic memories can be triggered by an equal or greater trauma or feelings of intense vulnerability as had been for the, ca- the case for me. The demons were in control once more, and I experienced a great surge of personal power when I seduced a co-worker until I had successfully reenacted the traumatic abuses of my past. I was horrified by my infidelity and felt such self-loathing after the event that I didn't want to live. Neither one of us had addressed the distance that had been growing between us prior to and after the affair because it was assumed that the problems I was having were my issues to address through my program. John attempted to get access to my pain, but I held him at bay, and his support system referred him to the passage that suggests that acceptance is the answer to all of his problems. We were close, but our programs were not. In this case, acceptance was contributing to the problems he and I were having. As Elaine has told you, we were married after a short courtship, but not before I received a warning of what might be coming in our life together. One night, after a tender and loving romantic encounter with my fiancé, I was awakened by a horrifying scream from Elaine, who had just bitten a large hole in my arm. When the shock of the event subsided, I comforted her through her deep sobbing, and she told me that she had fallen asleep after our intimate encounter, safer than she could ever remember, and met up with her rapist in her dreams. 
The next day, while waiting for my tetanus shot, I thought to myself that something needed to be done to get her some help, whether her program was my business or not. I returned home with a firm resolve to force the issue and found her behaving like nothing had happened, and when challenged, she blocked me with a refrain I had heard from her many times before. The past is the past. Let it go. Her position was supported by my sponsor and others. I was to mind my own business, leave her if I wanted, but never butt into a partner's program. Before the fog of that foreboding night had lifted, we were married and giving birth to a very sick child that was not expected to celebrate his first birthday. Our lives became consumed with the responsibility for keeping our child alive and a career afloat to pay the astronomical medical bills. Many years passed, and we grew closer and closer, but never close enough to address the deep traumatic material that lurked in the deeper recesses of Elaine's spirit, until her shame and overwhelming desire to drink forced the secret to the surface one Christmas morning. John brought me to his lap with the statement that he knew that I had something dark to tell him, and he wanted to be there for me. He continued with the position that he was tired of having separate programs, and the past seemed to be haunting me. I began with the fearful caution that I had been told by my parish priest and support group that the secret was mine to suffer and that I needed to take it to the grave. They assured me that I did not have the right to tell him about my infidelity in order to relieve my pain. However, I knew that I would not be able to remain in the shadows any longer and I would either have to leave, tell the truth, or drink again. John will say that he was not sure that anything he knew about me or loved about me was the truth that morning, but he was sure that the answer was in the 12 steps. He trusted God in the process of recovery and was certain that we would be helped by joining our programs of recovery even if we did not remain together. I had a great deal of work to do on myself related to the dark clouds of traumatic memories that I had failed to keep at bay. I came to understand, with the help of many, that I had struggled with an untreated sex and love addiction that began in adolescence and continued into my marriage. I suspect that John and I would not have had to endure my betrayal had we shared our recovery programs years before. I was unwilling to entrust him with the haunting memories of many of the traumatic injuries I had endured because those were secrets to be shared with God and a sponsor, but not a husband. He did not have the right to challenge the flimsy reeds of denial and blocking that I used to keep those demons at bay. But I was wrong. We shared the same God. We shared the same children and economic resources. We shared the same bed, but we had not had the courage to challenge the mainstream thinking that separate was better. It was not until that Christmas morning that we were willing to be truly in love. And we thought, Carol, that since we are approaching Christmas and we are at our last show with you, that we would take this opportunity to uh, let your audience in on what the progression of our respective illness and recovery look like uh, because it gave rise, unfortunately, to a great many uh, very destructive mass in ways that we hid from each other and unnecessarily ended up hurting each other. And we would want nothing more than to help your audience uh, avoid some of those pitfalls. Absolutely. So share a little bit about 
what wearing those different faces meant to each one of you. How did you do that? What do you mean by that phrase? Well, for me, Carol, um, well, in our book, One in the Spirit, we have two different times that we mention the faces we wear. And as you know, the book really speaks a lot about our story. So some of the faces that you heard in my story were noted in the book, such as the peacemaker, uh, the flirt, and one of them is resentments are us. And truly, I had started out as the peacemaker. I did anything and everything in my family of origin and in future relationships to just avoid being detected and to just keep everything quiet so that I could avoid harm and maybe even protect others from harm. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, led into other types of faces that I wore as the flirt. That was a way to really feel that personal power that I felt so robbed of and so... Um, unable to obtain through honest efforts on my part. And certainly the resentments, um, I was really stewing, uh, brewing with resentment um, at having no power, not knowing how to keep the perpetrators at bay, and really not knowing how to take care of myself. You know, So uh, resentment is a wonderful thing to keep people away from you. My way of doing it was really with the use of uh, displaying sarcasm but really use that uh, sarcastic tool to keep people away from me and to kind of have the wall that I could hide behind and not take risks. Well, absolutely. In some ways, you're really speaking of defense mechanisms that you use to protect yourself, but actually it created a lack of intimacy because you weren't being the real you. Yes, that's really so, true, Carol. So, John, what did you wear? Oh, every every single one uh, in the book, uh, but one that okay. still haunts me uh, is is what if. Um, okay. I I grew up in a first generation Italian home, and and worrying seemed to be my birthright. Um, complicated by the addiction and 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 dark depression that I experienced in my parents. Um, I was to to live a life uh, for many years, well into my recovery. I would live a life where I viewed life as a glass half full, not as a glass, uh, or a glass half empty, not empty, as a glass. Right. Yeah, not as a glass half full. I I, I, I take that back. Uh, most of the time, I viewed life as as someone had broken my glass and spilled everything out. So. I would be uh I would struggle for many years in our marriage with the what if scenarios that would generate anxiety and fear and when Elaine would try to challenge me uh to look at sober alternatives to the anxiety and the panic, the fear, I would make a louder, noisier case for why, you know, she was ignoring real and present dangers that that really were not. They were in my head. Well, and don't you believe that that half-empty mask that you wore really initially protected you from being hurt, but ultimately it kept you from really living because you couldn't see the other side? Yeah, I I couldn't say it better, Carol. You're so so right. Those, Those defects of character that become the focal points when you get to the sixth and seventh step of a 12 step program uh, really are life preservers when we are children. Um, you know, I, I grew up believing that if you don't worry, then you obviously don't love somebody. It was, it was going to be a long time in recovery before I was introduced to the, to the opposite of that, which is if you worry, why bother praying? 
Well, and can I ask Elaine then, if John did the what-if scenarios all the time with you and kind of turned the tables on you when he was really feeling anxiety, how would that affect you, Elaine? Well, uh, multiple ways, depending on, truthfully, what my uh, emotional and spiritual condition was at the time that this would happen. But oftentimes um, I would feel pretty pessimistic because, again, I carried that uh, peacemaker uh, role for a long time. So he's doing the what if and he's having the anxiety and everything, and I'm wanting everything to be rosy, everything to um, be great, and isn't everything wonderful? So uh, it would really uh, cause stress for me because I'm trying to make everything nice and keep peace and uh help him with understanding, no, the glass is not only half full, it's bubbling over. Can't you see this, you know? But part of that was also another facade on my part because, you know, one of the tools that I used to um, through growing up was to ignore what was in front of me and just kind of have almost like a Pollyanna view, you know? Well, absolutely, and I'm thinking about how you overdid it in this direction. John, Mm -hmm. you underdid it in the other direction, but ultimately the two of you met and were attracted to each other because the healthy part of you wanted to to be better and to learn the healthy way of, of interacting. That, that was certainly true for me, but that didn't come until I had decided that I was not going to be in a romance until I could figure out what it is that changed in me every mm-hmm. time I got into a relationship with a woman. I thought I had a broken picker, and it wasn't the problem at all. The problem was I changed when I was in a romance, and I behaved less and less sober. So then for both of you, what do you think was the saving grace that allowed you to finally figure it out, that it wasn't the picker? that it was something inside of you that needed to change? Well, I grew up in in the 12-step fellowship, as as you've heard me talk about a couple of times. I was 18 years old, and so it wasn't really a a rehabilitation experience for me. It was more of a habilitation experience. I was to learn um, how to live life by watching other people and I began to look around the rooms at uh, in the recovery rooms at the people who seemed to be happy, joyous, and free and finding a way to share that with their partners. And I knew that I wanted that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think had I, had I been allowed in the priesthood, I would have not found it. I got turned down in my bid for the priesthood um, because I was running the priest that turned me down was right. I needed to face what I didn't know then, because there were no S fellowships to be had, that I had an untreated love and sex addiction. Until I got uh, help for it, I was going to continue to flounder. And can I ask you something, John, because obviously you had multiple addictions. Did you find that when you got one addiction under control, the other one ramped up? Well, most of the time that was the case. Um, I, I believe, as I had read many times in the recovery text uh, known as the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. that our drinking is but a symptom of an underlying spiritual malady. And when I don't take care of spiritually and emotionally what's wrong with me, something else is going to pop up. It isn't necessarily so that to treat 
one addiction will trigger the onset of the other. It is the failure. It was the failure on my part to do the 12th step said, and that was practice these principles in all our affairs. Mm-hmm. If I was to begin to practice the principles of recovery in all our my affairs, and if I had stopped having affairs, um, life would have been better or faster. And that makes total sense. So it was really being able to practice those principles as well as to really embrace spirituality within the 12 steps. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is such an interesting concept, and I know that is it is it now I have to make sure I'm right here, but in your book, isn't there a couple of weeks, and I, of course I'm referring to one in the spirit, a couple's, um, course for re- I'm sorry, a meditation course for um, recovering couples. Would you say there's a couple of weeks in this book that speaks specifically about the masks and the faces that you wear? Yes, there is. There's two weeks, and it's called the Faces We Wear Part One and the Faces We Wear Part Two, and we just picked a you know five different. Uh, Faces, you know, I named a few of them already uh, for one week and the five different faces for the other week and just wrote about them and some of the challenges associated with using masks as a way to take care of yourself, um, but it's an illusion and it it interferes with the intimacy development that our couples are looking for. So how can people get the book, One in the Spirit, a meditation course for recovering couples? I thought you'd never ask. Yeah. You can call our offices and place an order by calling 732-797-1444. You can uh, order it through our website at www.leadhamcounseling.com, in which you can get free shipping, or you can mm-hmm. order any of our publications through Amazon. Well, and, you know, I did announce that at the very beginning of the show because I tell you what, you're two of our favorite guests. I have more people that say we really learned a lot from John and Elaine, and so I want you to know that your contribution has been just absolutely phenomenal. And you're writing a new book. We've got about 30 seconds. Tell, tell us what we can expect in the spring or summer. What you can expect from our new title, Awakening to Your Soulmate, A Decision to Be in Love, is the how to do what it is that we have done to get where we're at. Um, the course it can be an independent study or it can be used in conjunction with therapy, but it will lay out for couples the steps to take to build intimacy and closeness in the relationship um, and promote healing for each other. Fantastic. John and Ling, thank you so much for making such a difference within the 12-step community and certainly sexual addiction. I I so appreciate your contribution. Thank you so much for having us. Have a good night. You too. All right. Bye-bye. And so you can always um, contact them through www.leademcounseling.com. Uh, .com and Leadham Counseling and Consulting Services is out of New Jersey, but they will take your emails in any way, shape, or form. Listen, I want you to have a great week. We'll talk to you next week, and I want you to fearlessly face those fears head on because there will only be one of you at all times. Have the courage to be yourself, and I'll catch you next week on Sex Help with Carol the Coach. <laughs>